It's the January 31st, 2020 episode of Weekly Signals Meltdown. Broadcasting from Studio A at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And by the way, Nathan Callahan, I'd like to say happy birthday to my youngest sister, Diana. Happy really? birthday. So she doesn't need to listen to the rest of the show nope, now. Nope, that's it. Yeah. You're, you're free to go. Happy birthday, yeah, Diana. Yeah, bye. Have a fine, beautiful <laughs> year. Yes. Thank you. Where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. We got a dog here just waiting for oh, his yeah, introduction. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. An American who cares about Ukraine, Mahler, the fake news dog. Yeah. He cares. Well, thank you for wishing my sister Diana a happy birthday, too, Mahler. Thank you. Yeah. That was very nice of him. Yeah. Need to do that. Today we'll be talking about flash graphene, monarch butterflies, blatant political manipulation of science, and more. But first, mm-hmm. have you ever stared at the sun, Mike? Yes, I have. Really? Without well, protection? Well, I mean, I've to say stared. I've looked at the sun longer than I probably should have, but I've not. I don't think I've suffered any retinal damage. Really? Yeah. Did, were you, it that was like a dare it. or something? Was this in high school? Or were you a the president of the United States? No, no, just, yeah, right. Yeah. No, I was just curious. When you're told not to do something, yeah. when you're you know nine years old yeah. and you're a boy, yeah. you tend to want to do that. You know, I did. So you stared at the sun just to see if they were right. To see, yeah. you know, come on. You're did you put me, a right? fork in a uh, toaster? <laughs> Have you, no, never you done that. that never done that. But thanks oh, for, that's a good suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no, when I get don't home. Don't ever do that, Mike. Okay. Don't ever. Don't ever. Yeah. Yeah. Drive off a pier. <laughs> From Science Magazine, uh-huh. a new close-up of the turbulent boiling plasma of the solar surface of the sun is the debut image of the largest telescope ever built for looking at the sun. Mm-hmm. With a four-meter-wide mirror twice the size of any existing solar scope and a vantage point 3,000 meters up on the summit of Haleakala on the Hawaiian island of Maui, the Daniel K. Enyue Solar Telescope will reveal unprecedented data of processes that channel energy from the sun's interior into its atmosphere, hmm. the corona. The corona. Yeah. Great. Researchers hope that by zooming in on cell-like structures, each about the size of Texas. If you go online, you've probably already seen it. It's not exactly a fascinating shot, except if you think, well, that's the sun. Mm-hmm. Kind of looks like Rice Krispies. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing. Like, yeah, yeah. In, in chocolate milk. Yeah. And each one of those Rice Krispies is the size of Texas. Amazing. And they'll end up learning about what causes the sun to launch powerful flares out into space, potentially causing damage to Earth's satellites, power grids, and communications. Right. Which would be great because they can use that information to uh, give us warnings uh, when solar storms are coming. Right. And they'll get that information a lot sooner than they do now. They practically, the solar storm is upon us. Right. When they figure it out now. And they'll give us day's warning in advance so we can prepare to have the grid blow up. I mean, Save your electricity. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny. Solar power could be the thing that saves us from solar flares. 
In other words, if we know it's coming, yeah. you maybe can build a capacity of electricity to weather a solar potential. You can turn damage. off your your important stuff. Yeah, and not have it completely go down. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. Great. I don't know what else they would do. Yeah. Umbrellas. <laughs> Would that protect you from a solar storm? Well, uh, let me look into the sun and I'll give you an answer. Let me. I'm going to go outside for about 10 minutes and I'll come back with a, Good idea. an answer. Would you like some assorted nuts? Yes. Yes, <laughs> I would. I, 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 a little, oh, thank a little you. Can here. Oh, that's very. Oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, here. Oh, pardon me. Yeah, yeah. Have some. Boy, these are crunchy. Mmm. Mmm. And they're nutty. What kind did you get there? Uh, almonds and cashews and walnuts, my favorites. Are there any peanuts in there? Let me see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a really? couple. Yeah. 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 Wow. You know, planters, mm-hmm. the folks that, that bring you these nuts, other people do too, but planters <laughs> is perhaps the best known nut farm, mm-hmm. put its Super Bowl advertising campaign about the fictional death of its mascot, Mr. Peanut, on hold. Oh. Yeah. After the fatal crash of Kobe Bryant's helicopter. Yeah. Mr. Peanut sacrificed his life to save his friends after a freak nutmobile accident. That's, oh, that's what happened It's a little there. too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah too oh. soon. Yeah, too yeah. soon, yeah. I think this is just a cheap publicity move. You don't think they really ever had anything like oh, this? They did. Oh, I, they did. I watched Mr. Peanut die. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, you know, he's a fictional character. So they tied it into Kobe's... So, yeah, now they're yeah. getting that press. Uh, you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. If we say we're not going to do this... Wow. Then we get all this free right, exactly. ink. We're not going to do this thing, so don't even bother looking. <laughs> don't talk about us on uh, weekly signals. On weekly and, signals. And give us all that free oh, press. Yeah. Well, in the words of Bill Hicks, for you marketing people, yeah, yeah kill yourself. From Science Day, I'm just making that up. I don't know. Maybe this was a really heartfelt response from Mr. Peanut. But you should kill yourself. <laughs> and We're not kidding. Or I'm not kidding. From Science Daily. That's a good magazine, yes. online source yeah. there, Science Daily. A new process can turn bulk quantities of just about any carbon source into valuable graphene flakes. And I have a bowl of those every morning <laughs> for breakfast. Those are and, delicious. And I can attest to the fact that Nathan Callahan has a very strong constitution, too, yeah. as a result of that. Yeah. yeah. The flash graphene technique can convert a ton of coal, food waste, or plastic into graphene for a fraction of the cost used by other bulk graphene-producing methods. And what's the value of graphene, Nathan? I don't know. Uh, But let's just go on a little bit here. Flash graphene is made in 10 milliseconds by heating carbon-containing materials to about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's how they do it. And the source material can be nearly anything with carbon content, including food waste, rubber tires, and plastic. Mm-hmm. Graphene can be used for anti-corrosion coatings, paints, mm-hmm. sensors, and this is where it gets really interesting, electronics, mm-hmm. solar panels, DNA sequencing, drug delivery, and more. And more. Quite a valuable a material. concentration of as little as 0.1% of flash graphene in a cement used to bind concrete could lessen cement's production's massive environmental impact by a third. That's a great deal for that is the a great environment. Deal. This is something I really didn't know about until relatively recently, yeah. the impact of concrete yeah. on our environment. And so this sounds great. Yeah, production of cement reportedly emits as much as 8% of human-made carbon dioxide every year. That's amazing. This could provide a huge outlet for coal, 
by converting it inexpensively into a much higher value building material. The present commercial price of graphene is between $67,000 and $200,000. A ton of coal is about 39 bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's the difference in price once you put yeah. it through this process. And if, if they're able to mass manufacture this, it'd be great. Yeah. Well, this is a great development. Yeah. Do we have any idea how far this is from commercial enterprise? I guess they're already doing this. In small doses. Small doses. And yeah, they're okay. probably going to test it. We might find out that it didn't work. That could always happen. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. yeah. That's great. It's gro I mean, potentially a really valuable development. From Forbes. Scientists discovered a new way to maximize the energy of a particle accelerator, making it more energy efficient. The potential implications of the green accelerator. <laughs> That's right, Mahler. Touches all fields that have to do with electronics, from semiconductors to medical imaging and medical therapies to cure diseases. In fact, your computer right now uses a particle accelerator to make those images appear on your screen. Right. People always think particle accelerators are things they have up at Stanford University right. that they only use for research. Or at the, or they're at everywhere. The, or at the Hadron Collider. Yeah, you know, yeah wherever that slamming is. Slamming atoms into each other. And slamming so, Adam. Yeah. He's one of our DJs here. <laughs> In fact, only 1% of particle accelerators worldwide are used for research purposes. Okay. Yeah, 1%. Yeah, good. The rest, stuff. The Discovery team at Cornell University have designed a new way to reuse the energy, making the accelerator more energy efficient and able to produce beams of higher energy, which were not possible before. God. It first accelerates the particle through the beam, but then at the deceleration stage, instead of dumping the energy, the green accelerator captures the energy and then recycles it for the next acceleration. Yes. This is very cool. That's, so it's energy efficient. That's very cool. Very good science going on there. The green accelerator is also able to produce brighter and stronger beams, which previously required too much energy. This is like a uh, the green accelerator. <laughs> it's like the green accelerator. Yeah. This is the race we're in right now, the race of science against our stupidity or our inaction as a collective. It's lucky we have a smart leader who oh, yeah. knows how to use Whew. science. Yeah, well, we dodged a bullet there, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. You can imagine... <laughs> What deep crap we'd be in if we had someone stupid who who mocks science, you know? Yeah. Thank God. Well, thank God. Thank yeah. God. Wow. We don't. <laughs> if this news gives you hope, may I recommend a donation to KUCI to give us hope? Yes. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, K U C I 88.9 FM. You like Forbes magazine, do you? I do. You? Yes. I think they are a good source of journalism. Yeah. I have found them to be. Yes. This one's also from Forbes, this yeah. story. Yeah. Agriculture's contribution to the climate crisis is typically underestimated. Yeah. Agriculture because of emission sources that are routinely overlooked. The classic Environmental Protection Agency chart, you've seen that. Who hasn't? Yeah. yeah. yeah I keep it pinned up in my bathroom, <laughs> you know, so when I'm sitting there uh, thinking about stuff, yeah. I can look at that 
Environmental Protection Agency chart. Yeah. It suggests agriculture is 9% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, but the, this number is significantly low. <laughs> agriculture contributes much closer to 15 or 20% or more of world greenhouse gas emissions, and even those estimates may be low because most assessments don't include these five sources of agriculture emissions. Are you ready, Mahler? You ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Let's do that. Well, we're gonna, the number one yeah. assessment that they overlook is soil disturbance carbon. Yes. Uh, when experts assess emissions from agriculture, they rarely consider the carbon emitted by soil disturbance. In other words, when you're going out there and you're digging it up. You're tilling the land, as they say. Yeah, you're yeah. releasing carbon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Number two. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, Mahler. <laughs> Lost sequestration. Most estimates don't include the carbon sequestration that would be occurring on land had it not been converted to agriculture use. Statistics don't usually include all the legacy that lost carbon sequestration, all the land that used to be holding carbon. That's what we're talking about, mm. sequestration, essentially. Right. It's right. holding the carbon, but now has been deforested or has been tilled. Number three. Good boy. Good boy. Input footprints. This one I was not familiar with. Yeah. The stats don't include the manufacture of a lot of the agriculture input, like fertilizer, which is highly energy intensive. Right. So they're not accounting for what all the manufacturing of what they're putting into the land, right. only that it's in the land. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Number four, difficult measures. Difficult to measures. Okay. Measurements. Yeah. Difficult measurements. There you go. Yeah. Agriculture is a living biological system, so often the measurement of the carbon of the greenhouse gas impact is much less certain than with the other sectors of the economy, like fossil fuel. You can measure the burning of a gallon of gasoline yeah. scientifically. More difficult to do this. Yeah. But it is, and the point that needs to be made, it is, in fact, releasing carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, the number five, <laughs> overlooked emission measurement. Yeah. <laughs> Potent gases. Yeah. Very good. Good boy, by the way, Molly. Yeah, this is really great. Uh, well, I, uh, I've been working on that all week with him. Well, and, and this, uh, yeah, I think yeah. this is a category that Mahler's Mahler's quite, yeah, Mahler's quite well versed in this particular category. Potent gases. The yeah. focus on carbon dioxide, however warranted, neglects more powerful gases emitted in agriculture. Much of the greenhouse gas effect of agriculture is methane. Yes. Cow waste on the ground converts into methane. Yes. Another major source is nitrous oxide. When you put too much fertilizer on the ground, the fertilizer that's not absorbed by plants can run off and cause water pollution. And also, microbial action can also be converted to nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Isn't that depressing? When these... Well, but it doesn't last as long. We learned okay. that. Okay, yeah, that's it's, right. That's it's only right. going to be going on for 10, 20 years, the nitrous oxide. But... It's 300 times more destructive 
from carbon dioxide for our atmosphere. Despite these high numbers, climate damage from agriculture may be easier to mitigate than pollution from other sectors. That's the good news. That is the good news. Because it could be mitigated with existing technologies like crop rotation and using organic fertilizer. The good news is if we're smart, we can actually reach carbon-neutral agriculture soon, and we can reach it in a way that is profitable to farmers and their communities. Right. So let's do it. These are not uh, some advanced technology that we need to implement or integrate into our farming system. These are things that in some ways are a throwback to the old ways of agriculture. Not all of them. Some of them are innovative and new, but a lot of them are just... Well, they're easy to do. They're just a better management of the land. From KQED. Just 29,000 western monarch butterflies are left in California. That's depressing. I saw one about two weeks ago, yeah. and it was the first one I'd see. What I saw it, I was struck by, I haven't seen one of these yeah. in a while. That's down from millions. Yeah. And there were millions at one point, because yeah. I saw all one million of them. Mm-hmm. I'd go up there uh, above, uh, where is it now? Pismo Beach, Los Osos. Okay. There's a, a great area in there where they used to just hang off the eucalyptus trees. Just millions of them. Yeah. Do you remember, it was about a year ago, I may be off a year, year and a half ago, when there was a butterfly, like a a, a flood of them oh, yeah, yeah, came yeah. through uh-huh. this area. They were migrating by the, apparently by the millions. They weren't monarch butterflies. No, no. I think they were white, little white guys. Yes, they yeah. were. They were just, I remember driving down the Coast Highway, they were just... I'd go for walks, and they'd just be everywhere. They'd be fluttering around. It was like snow. Yeah. One major reason for the drastically reduced numbers is the loss of coastal forest groves where monarchs can safely roost in the winter months and their shrinking springtime breeding habitat. This is due to land development, forest management practice, and wildfire. That would be called climate change. That would be. Drought, increased storm frequency and intensity, and temperature extremes have also made California a less hospitable place for monarchs. That would be climate change. So you plant native milkweed in inland breeding areas is what you do. You get some milkweed and try and help them out, Uh, as well as nectar-producing flowers for monarchs to feed on. In the spring, monarchs fly inland to lay their eggs on milkweed plants. Caterpillars that hatch feed on the leaves. Milkweed is the only thing monarch caterpillars eat and is essential to their survival. You ever have any of that milkweed stuff? I've never had it. Well, you should. Okay. Plant some of that stuff. Okay. Get some seeds. It's cheap. Otherwise, the nurseries are charging like six to ten bucks for a plant that it really is pretty easy to grow. And once you get one or two in your yard, they always come back. Oh. Because they're seeding, you know. Right. Okay, that's, good to know. That's, and uh, even though they die back during the winter months, they're pretty little plants. And you see little caterpillars chewing away, mm-hmm. having fun. And then they find a place to to hook onto. Yeah. And next thing you know... They're molting. They're turning into beautiful butterflies. That's right. They transform themselves. Yes. It's magical. It is magical. It's crazy. That is really one of the more remarkable transformations in all of nature, is that. Okay. I mean, in my opinion, I, yeah. I mean, there are some yeah. that are more spectacular, but that's one of those, rel- it used to be relatively common. I remember growing up, caterpillars were everywhere. Yeah. I just, it was just a given you would see a caterpillar. Yeah. I haven't seen one in, I don't know what. I'll bring one in. Thank you. I don't want to bring one in. No. It would disturb them. It would. 
but I'll let you know when I got one. We can come over and have a cup of coffee. Would that be great? Federal officials are considering listing monarch butterflies for protection under the Endangered Species Act. Like that's going to happen. Good with, luck with whatever that guy's name yeah. is. He's screwing up the country. Yeah, in office, Colonel Mustard. <laughs> a decision is expected in December. Maybe we can send him a little picture of a caterpillar turning into a beautiful butterfly, and that would melt his heart. If nah, we, if we, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> Meanwhile. Homero Gomez Gonzalez, a former logger who became one of Central America's most prominent defenders of their region's monarch butterfly population, was found dead floating in a well near the butterfly sanctuary he had spent decades working to preserve. He battled to save the monarch butterfly from illegal logging. The cause of death is not yet known, but we can guess, can't we? I think we can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm depressed. This is the ups and downs. This is the yin and yang of weekly weekly signals. Yes. Like, well, hey, that green accelerator sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Now let's talk about the death, one of the most beautiful creatures in all of nature. And somebody who's trying to save them, who's probably been killed by loggers. Right. Uh, Here's a bright story for you, though. (laughs) In India, a man died after being attacked by his razor-laden rooster while on their way to a cockfight. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. The rooster didn't want to put up with that crap anymore. And he had his He just sliced and diced, on. didn't yeah. he? Okay. Oh, the guy that's... didn't die on the scene. They took him to a hospital, and he had a stroke. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9. On our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com. On Twitter and Instagram. Wow. Yeah, well, Wait, I'm just a second. got to pay more attention. Were you going to sleep there? No, I was. I just dozed off. On Twitter and Thank Instagram you. at KUCI at KUCI FM, stream us live on TuneIn or go to KUCI.org. From Reuters News Service. A new report found that the contamination of U.S. drinking water with man-made forever chemicals is far worse than previously estimated, with some of the highest levels found in Miami, Philadelphia, and New Orleans. Yeah. This isn't good. The chemicals resistant to breaking down in the environment are known as perfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> PFAS. PFAS. Yeah. PFAS sounds like this or that, but it does, doesn't it? It does. I can imagine PFAS. I think he drives a uh, a lowered <laughs> Cadillac convertible uh-huh. and wears a lot of jewelry. Wow. PFAS. Uh, PFAS. Yeah. yeah. I think we have stumbled across the next great rapper's name is that what you're implying i'm, I'm kind of roman in that area yeah, okay but, yeah. yeah yeah what were you gonna say i'm just there? gonna say the location where they have identified these elements uh-huh. doesn't surprise me new orleans the one that doesn't surprise me because that's sort of chemical alley of the united states yeah. there are a lot of processing chemical processing facilities i'd be surprised if houston wasn't another one where yeah. they they would find these things some have been linked to cancers of these pfases 
liver damage, low birth weight, and other health problems. The findings by the Environmental Working Group show the group's previous estimate in 2018, based on unpublished U.S. Environmental Protection Agency data that 110 million Americans may be contaminated with PFAS, could be far too low. Yeah. Those estimates. The chemicals are used in products like Teflon and Scotchgard and in firefighting foam. Yeah. Some are used in a variety of other products and industrial processes, and their replacements also pose risks. This Scotchgard and Teflon yeah. has been something that the chemicals in that have been talked about for quite some time. Also, a lot of these end up in our furniture, and when the, yeah. over time, the fumes are also considered to be very unhealthy, too. The, the depressing thing is when they call them forever chemicals. Yeah. That's the thing that, uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to wrap your mind around the, knowing that they'll be in the environment far past the time when you and I are gone. So, Of tap water samples taken by the Environmental Working Group from 44 sites in 31 states and Washington, D.C., only one location, Meridian, Mississippi, which relies on 700-foot-deep wells, had no detectable PFAS. Only Seattle and Tuscaloosa, Alabama had levels below one part per trillion, the limit the Environmental Working Group recommends. It's not a good thing. No. The levels of contamination by PFAS is much higher than they thought. And just from the products that you described in the story, those things are pervasive. They're everywhere. Yeah. And they're going to continue to manufacture and produce those, those things for uh -huh. a long, long time to come. Thank God we have a president. Oh yeah, who, who's yeah. on top of this stuff? And, a visionary. Yeah, on these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it's really I'm. Who's, who, has, who really cares about oh, the environment? Please. Yeah. Yeah. From smart cities, it's been two months since New York's sustainable roof laws took effect. They have roof laws there in New York. Sustainable roof laws. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now architects and officials have to decide: are green roof systems? or solar roof systems best. Green means you got plants up there. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know what solar systems are. They uh, have a lot of planets spinning around. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, they're, they're solar, solar cell panels. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The roof laws require most new buildings and buildings undergoing major roof reconstruction to include a sustainable roofing zone on 100% uh, of the available roof space. In other words, they got to do everything. Yeah. Oh. According to a mapping project from the Nature Conservancy, there were only about 730 green roofs, gardens or grass rooftops, out of over 1 million rooftops in New York City. That's in 2016. Okay. That makes sense, though. Yeah. They're, they weren't, especially back then. I mean, it's only a few years, but still, uh, they weren't that popular. And solar is much more prevalent with a total of about 22,000 completed solar projects throughout the city as of 2019. Okay. 22,000. Yeah. That sounds good. To be honest, our very strong opinion is that green roofs have more benefits. This is according to a sustainable building advocate. If it's an either-or, we typically try to steer the, the design toward green roofs. Hmm. However, roofs that get abundant sunlight and are unblocked by neighboring buildings, and especially those with sloped roofs, are prime for solar because... You can't put a green roof on a slope roof. There you go. Or it'd be pretty difficult. Yeah, well. Your pots would keep sliding <laughs> off into the street. 
You do not want yeah. a, a the, pot hitting you that's come from 55 stories yeah. up. That's That would not be good. Or the, I imagine the dirt, too. You know, if yeah. you're, you're yeah. putting dirt up there, it's going yeah. to yeah. roll off. I, I mean, it sounds like it's situational. Depends yeah. on just what those factors are. And now the, the value of the green roof is it absorbs heat it absorb, and it also absorbs carbon. And I would imagine, done well, done right, it also is a an asset to the building itself. If you were to build some kind of a garden, people could walk oh, up yeah, the roof. Oh, yeah, a garden and, especially. Yeah. From The Guardian. Political appointees at Trump's Republican Interior Department played up climate pollution from California wildfires by downplaying emissions from fossil fuels as a way of promoting more logging in the nation's forests according to uh, internal emails obtained by The Guardian. So this isn't just a passive resistance to mitigation of climate damage. This is active. This is something that's different than neglect. They're actively looking for ways to screw the environment, beholding to fossil fuels. And to make money. They're looking for ways to make make money. They're greedy bastards. This is just unspeakably horrible. The messaging plan was crafted in support of Trump's Republican pro-industry arguments for harvesting more timber in California, which Trump says would thin forests. Well, yeah, it would, and prevent fires, a point forestry experts refute. Yeah. This is old growth, too. That's the sad part. Everybody talks about planting trees, but they're going to take 20, 30, 40, even 100 or 200 years to get to the carbon-absorbing properties that the old growth has. Right. And by that time, we'll all be suffering. (laughs) The emails show officials seeking to estimate the carbon emissions from devastating 2018 fires in California so they could compare them to the carbon footprint of the state's electricity sector and then publish statements encouraging cutting down trees. The records offer a look behind the scenes at how Trump and his appointees have tried to craft a narrative that forest protection efforts are responsible for wildfires, even as science shows fires are becoming more intense, largely because of climate change. And a rake ain't going to help that. James Riley, a former petroleum geologist who is the Trump director of the U.S. Geological Survey, in a series of emails in 2018, asks scientists to gin up emission figures for him. Gin them up, making me look good so we can cut down trees. Chad Hansen, a California-based forest ecologist who co-founded the John Muir Project and who has opposed logging after fires, called the strategizing revealed in the emails a blatant political manipulation of science. Mother. I mean, this is why we need oversight. This is why Congress must be vigilant, must continue to hold these people accountable, because in the grand scheme of all of the insanity that Trump generates and his administration has generated since he's been in office, this is just a blip on the radar. But these are things that matter. These things are actually will have an impact on our lives and the sustainability of the planet. Yeah. And it's just what you said, blind greed. Yeah. Meanwhile, police in Philadelphia are investigating a physical assault complaint that Gritty, the Flyers hockey team mascot, punched a 13-year-old boy in the face. (laughs) Does Mueller have an opinion about mascots? Is there something he... Yeah, yeah. 
they 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 make yeah. a mockery of animals. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. They do. They do. They, well, they they hold them up to ridicule in some some way, or they make them smarter. <laughs> yeah. No, no offense. No offense, Mahler. Oh boy, from the Atlantic. Yeah, shut up over there. Yeah, Jesus. All right. The rollout of 5G, the new super speedy cellular networks. This is going to change my life. I, I just, yeah. all this kind of stuff, I'm just so over the idea. I'm sure it, it's an advancement in, in the science. Yeah. We'll, but, we'll, we'll have smart cars and stuff like yeah, that. But, yeah. you know, it was going to make me smarter. Yes. Then I'm for it. Yes. Uh, I don't see how I could get any smarter, yeah. Mike. Now, my phone bill is always going to be $130 <laughs> yeah, a month, no matter what I do. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we're yeah. at a geopolitical turning point, but neither Trump or the public recognize it yet. This is an inflection point. Yeah. The American and European consumers could easily mistake 5G for just another marketing ploy. Nope. And for the better part of the past two years, wireless carriers on both sides of the Atlantic have been hyping 5G, which they promise will offer data speeds of up to 100 times faster than current connections. Tech futurists say fifth-generation networks will support a bunch of Internet-connected sensors, vehicles, appliances, and other devices that will perform functions yet unimagined. And also, well, yeah, yeah well, that goes both ways. Yes, yeah, and and in addition to keeping even closer eye on what you and I are doing yeah. with our lives, uh, the transition to five G may also mark the point after decades of Chinese integration into a globalized economy mm-hmm. when China's interests diverge from those of the U.S., mm-hmm. the European Union, and their democratic peers. Some of the world's leading telecom equipment manufacturers, including Huawei and ZTE are Chinese companies with murky ownership structures and close ties to China's authoritarian one-party government. Many in the U.S. national security establishment rightly fear that equipment made by these companies could allow Beijing to siphon off sensitive personal and corporate data. Or it could use well-concealed kill switches to cripple Western telecom systems during an act of war. We'd be using their equipment Right. And, and they technology. could have and bugs in there that could... And their chips. Yeah, yeah, viruses that could destroy our system when they wanted to. Right. I would assume the Chinese might make the same argument on their side. Sure. So I don't know that to be true, but I, I'm guessing that technology goes both ways. The framing of 5G primarily as a consumer technology matter works to China's benefit. Yeah. If they can just say it's to help the consumer. Meanwhile, policymakers have viewed the 5G dispute first as a trade issue. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's just that, but that has a lot to do with it as far as which companies are going to get the upper hand here. Right. The future of advanced wireless services depends completely on how much fiber is in place. You need something to hold all the information that's coming through. And in terms of the world's telecommunication network infrastructure the u.s has been lagging behind the rest of the world in significant ways for quite a while now the data carrying capacity of 5g will give countries that invest in those advanced fiber networks a huge advantage over those that don't china is planning to cover 80 percent of its residences and businesses with 5g connectivity by 2025 yeah Only about 10% of the U.S.'s 119 million households subscribe to high-speed fiber services, and 75% of census blocks, those are the 
the way we divide the country up for the census. 75% of those census blocks have no access to residential fiber at all. Yeah. yeah so we're, we're just way behind. Way behind. Yeah. By ceding telecommunications infrastructure to big monopolistic carriers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T, the U.S. government has effectively given up its role in information technology policy. We don't have a unified vision here. Right. If you're stuck with the Internet carrier monopolies, there's less incentive for the Internet carriers to spend much to upgrade their distribution networks to fiber. Instead, they're looking for ways to make money out of the same physical infrastructure. Right. That's why the Internet needs to be a utility. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the U.S. infrastructure needs to be upgraded. Yes. And neither of those things is happening right now. Because of just what you described. Because Spectrum, Cox you name it, whoever your carrier is, there's no incentive for them to modernize, to become more efficient, faster, because they're making a lot of money with the system that they have now. (laughs) This is where China's economy, the scale, the size of it, is kind of a blunt force instrument in terms of imposing this kind of thing on us, because the world will be embracing UA and ZTE. Huawei, thank you, thank you, Huawei, because of this tremendous economic advantage that China enjoys now. Its reach around the world is growing. They're going into Africa in significant ways. There are just things about the Chinese economy that are going to overwhelm the rest of the economies of the world. And so we'll be left behind if we don't embrace it. So this greed on the part of American companies to not continue to innovate and continue to improve our efficiencies is going to come back to haunt them. You you seem to be more opposed to 5G. Me, not so much. Only because I just wish we'd we'd upgrade and do it in a smart way and do it with a national program that would, would help everybody instead of just these goddamn monopolistic carriers like Cox and Comcast. Right. I'm with you. Uh, I, think I, I think we're in agreement. According to a recent Gallup poll, visiting the local library remains by far the most common cultural activity. By far. The average 10.5 trips to the library U.S. adults report taking in 2019 exceeds their participation in going to the movies 5.3 times a year, live music or theatrical events and visiting national and historic parks roughly four times a year and visiting museums and gambling casinos. I guess that's equal, huh? 2.5 times a year. Hey, honey, how many times have we gone to the gambling casino? (laughs) We better go to the museum instead. I think that's statistically true. I'm not quite sure. And you don't know why. I, yeah. You don't know the impetus behind it. But I'm just encouraged yeah. that that many people are actually going to a place where they can see other people, right. where they're not all just facing a screen or going for a ride, where right. they're actually interacting with other people and looking for things that are of interest to them and can educate themselves. We had this discussion a couple of weeks ago, and my point was that libraries have really upped their game. There, on a lot of levels, technically, the space itself is improved. There's all kinds of things about libraries that are really cool. And finally, yeah, a cold snap in Miami prompted the National Weather Service to forecast falling iguanas. <laughs> as the reptiles were too chilled to hold on to their branches. 
Iguana meat was subsequently found for sale on Facebook Marketplace in the Miami area under the label Chicken of the Trees. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.